Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Zenway Podcast. I am Zenway, your host for this show. On this show, we talk everything about life, career, and tech. Uh, today, I have a friend from another continent, uh, you know, way over in, in Canada, Montreal, and his story really brought him to you know, different countries from Asia to Africa and you know, to Canada as well. Uh, and he's also a fellow uh, co-founder and you know, chief operating officer as well. Uh, you know, prior to this, you know, I, I had a chat with Jordan. Uh, he, we, we had a, a very good chat around uh, the, the topic about you know, chief operating officer because there, are, there seem to be a lack of you know, mentions. I guess maybe they're, they're not as glamorous as CEOs, but you know, obviously a very important role. So I wanted to really have a conversation with him on this, uh, you know, on, on camera at least, right? Uh, but before we jump right into it, you know, Jordan, welcome to the show, and you know, why not you just introduce everybody? Uh, introduce yourself to everybody on the show. Sounds great. Thank you so much for, for having me on today. Um, yeah, I'm I'm Jordan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of now called Labfront. Uh, we specialize in digital biomarkers um, and specifically catered right now to the health research sector. Uh, I've been doing I've been working on on our journey from startup for just about nine years now. Um, so it's been with the same CEO with my co-founder Chris. Uh, so we've been we've been along this journey uh, for quite some time, and uh, we've also I've also worked um, with your your podcast host as well on some projects uh, out in Singapore as well. Um, so yeah, happy to be here and uh, happy to go through some of this discussion here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks, thanks, Jordan. You know, nine years is a long time. I you know one of one of my my mentors were were talking about how. Uh, you know, in a startup journey, you know, you're you're in you're in with it for a very long time, right? And sometimes marriages don't even last as long as your relationship with your co-founder. So nine years is a it's a long time. You're so it's a year shy from a, from a decade. So congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, you know the okay. So let's let's start with your experiences, right? Because at at the top of the show, I mentioned that you know your 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 experiences brought you from you know Canada, Africa, Taipei, you know Boston, um, largely in the healthcare industry and the health tech space, right? You know, let's let's go through the your your memory lane a little bit. You know, how did each of those kind of like chapter kind of unfolded for you, right? If you could kind of bring us back to maybe your the beginning of your uh, uh of of your journey, right? Sure. Yeah. Um. So I'm I'm originally from Canada, uh, from Ottawa, which is the nation's capital over here, and I went to university uh, in Montreal. So actually, McGill University. I studied physiology, so on the health sciences side. I still remember the, the first class I went into, there was 600 people in that class and they asked the question, and like, who wants to be a doctor in this room? And everyone raised their hand and I was the only person not to raise and I'm like, what am I doing here? Um, <laughs> and then, so funny story, after I graduated from McGill, within two weeks of graduating, I had uh, essentially moved out of my apartment, left Montreal and was on a flight to Ethiopia. Um, to start wow. a hospital. What I said I was not interested in partaking in uh, ended up kind of doing that. So I ended up um, actually starting this or, or joining one of my pals, one of my good college uh, roommates, as well as his father, who was a famous uh, surgeon in Ethiopia. They were originally from Norway. They do a lot of charitable work. So um, they, they were in, in Ethiopia for over 20 years. Uh, he, the, the father actually grew up there. And uh, we went over there and Initially, it was just the three of us, and the, the, the whole concept behind it was like, okay, well, the, the father had worked across many different hospitals, across Ethiopia, 
and they wanted to start up their own thing. But the problem was is that um, they didn't want to do a purely charitable mission because what they were finding is he was spending most of his time outside the country just trying to raise funding uh, for, for charity and uh, in, instead of actually doing the work. So what they did in that, in that course of action, what they decided to do was actually, well, why don't we start our own thing? Uh, we'll, we'll start up our own hospital. And uh, that's what we did over the course of, over the course of like three years. Um, we, we started what essentially was the, uh, we'll say is like one of the, the best uh, emergency hospitals in, uh, in the country. It's one of the first international hospitals there uh, in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And uh, yeah, so we, we started that um, originally. And then um, during my time there, uh, we had, had a hospital that could cater to emergency services or, or for any emergencies, but we had no way to get people to the hospital. So in Ethiopia, there is no ambulance system. There's no number you call if you have an emergency. Um, so we were like, okay, what do we do now? So what we decided to do is we imported a couple ambulances to try to like run our own fleet. And at that time we were like, okay, well, what's the most reasonable thing to do? Well, how about we just um, pick up a system from uh, Norway or from Canada or from the U.S. and just import that whole system, that whole technology into Ethiopia and kind of run our whole um, EMS, which is called Emergency Medical Services system with the ambulance fleet directly. Um, so I had gone to Ottawa to the National EMS Center and talked to the, to the heads there, said like, hey, like teach me everything you need to know, what I need to know to like run a EMS system, having no knowledge in this at all. Try to bring that technology back to Ethiopia, tried it within a week, just completely failed. It just wasn't working. Um, and the reality was is that in this environment, there were so many, um, I'd call it a, uh, a rugged environment, uh, a lot of unique infrastructure challenges. So you had, I mean, you were lucky if you got Wi-Fi consistently. Um, like power outages consistently going in, the networks, um, cell towers would go would go out. So how do you, how can you run a technology infrastructure system when the infrastructure you're basing on is so fluctuating? So at that point, um, we uh, actually, at that point, I was like, okay, well, well, we might have to just build this ourselves. So I called one of uh, my college pals who was on the track and field team with me back in the day. And he was, a, he was really good in computer science. Um, and he, the reason I knew he was good is because he used to do all my university comp 101 work. The only reason <laughs> I've had that course is he used to do it. And um, that turned out to be Chris, which is now my co-founder for like 10 years. Um, wow. So he was working at HTC in Taipei at the time, uh, the, the phone company during its height, where it was like yes. HTC phones were the top dog. Right. And um, so we brought him over to, to Ethiopia a couple of times, and we built our own software platform to essentially connect. We had an, our own like little EMS dispatch center inside the hospital, um, which we had like a computer-assisted dispatching system where you could see all the, where our... Um, our ambulances were located across the city. We could dispatch them to different units. And then we also had developed our own uh, apps for, for, part, for patients to essentially, they could just press on the app and it would directly ping, our, uh, ping their location directly to us because another thing that is in the country, especially at that time, there are no street names. So how do you describe where you are if you had an emergency? So that's where um, the GPS technology uh, was really in play. And this is just at the start when Uber was kind of taking off. So even before we like Uber really took off or Lyft or all those ones, we we're like one of the first ones. We're definitely the first ones in the country to do this kind of work. Um, and anyways, long story short, we ended up creating the country's first EMS system 
uh, deployed across the, the country. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how we started in, um, in Ethiopia. Um, and yeah, I don't know if we want to spend more time on this stuff yeah. and then we can move on. Yeah, I mean, there's so, many, there's, there's so many angles I can go with this, right? But yeah. I think let's start with uh, you studying physiology, right? What was the... Because you mentioned that, you know, in the class, 600 over people, you're probably one, the, one of the only or maybe a couple of you that did not raise your hand, right? So what was the... I guess intention in taking out physiology, right? Because you know, in my with my uh, previous guests, you know, there quite a lot of them are psychology majors for some reason. I guess maybe because we're classmates, um, they all had a story, right? So I'm sure you had a story around why you wanted to study physiology, and it seems like you know the intent of studying physiology is to eventually become a doctor, right? So tell us a little bit about 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 that, and and you know, um, uh, before we dive into everything else, right? I'm, I'm quite curious in terms of your intention there. Yeah, sure. So well. It's pretty simple. Both my parents are, are scientists. So my dad was on the on the defense. He's a defense scientist for the government here in Canada. Right. So he works with all different complex kind of systems. And then my mom was a uh, nuclear physicist. So she was one of, she was actually one of the first women in Canada to to work wow. in nuclear industry. Um, and anyway, so obviously they pushed me into 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 sciences, and it was just kind of my natural progression from there. Even though I definitely had a more uh, I was definitely more pushing towards like the business side of things. Mm. Personally, and on my side, I didn't like the idea of knowing exactly where I would be in the future. I liked the idea of having a journey and just not knowing where that could take you, kind of being in control of your destiny in that sense. And to me, just the idea of being confined to a hospital was just, it was just too much for me. It was a bit scary for me. Um, right. So that's, that's kind of why I didn't, but looking back on it, it's actually a fantastic place to work. And I ended up working in one anyway. So uh, it was, silly thinking in that side. But, yeah. <laughs> I guess we all had our journeys where, you know, we had a preconceived notion of the place and, uh, you know, looking back, I think uh, it, it's really by spending time, you know, trying to be familiar with the unfamiliar that we'll be able to find something that we like about a particular place, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, the, the next thing I wanted to, let's, let's talk about Ethiopia, right? I think um, you've, you moved there, you spent almost, almost a decade there. Right, uh, you know, like I spent, I spent two years in uh, two years, two years in, in Addis, yeah, before moving to Denver. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And I guess what are some of the? You've mentioned quite a lot of things, right? You know, uh, infrastructural challenges to kind of deploy text tech-based kind of structure. You had to really make sure that there are different types of, I guess, uh, components that comes together to, to enable it to work. I'm wondering maybe if you could talk about. What are some of the, I guess, unique lessons that you've learned, right, from that region, and you know how 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 has it how, how have you seen it evolving over time, you know? Yeah, I mean, for for me, going to Ethiopia was the, the best thing that has ever happened to me. It is is a huge blessing because on just on a personal side, it's yes. um, I got to learn very early on exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and I was just like. I wanted to focus on healthcare, on technology, sort of the health tech space, and I was very, very focused on on the impact side of, of the work. So being able to, I really like being able to see what our work could do in terms of the hands of the patients and the population that we're helping. Um, so just being in that environment really made it clear, um, and it it really was a blessing to, to know what you want to do and, and be passionate about this early on in your career. It, it was amazing to, to have that experience. 
in terms of lessons learned, um, I'd say the number one thing would be, which is like important in any like entrepreneurial journey or any, uh, if you're starting your own startup or whatever, is resilience. So the, the concept of being resilient, especially in, in Ethiopia, I mean, fluctuating environment, not, not even just in terms of the technology or the infrastructure, but we're talking about constant government changes as well, especially during that time. I think we had gone through five different, over the, over the last like six years where we were still running the EMS system, we had gone through five different government changes where we had to meet five different new ministers of health and work and start from scratch again every single time. And so a lot of different uh, moving parts. And I think what it, the resilience aspect is like you can't plan everything. And going in an environment like that, um, it made it very clear that sometimes you just have to be responsive and just something happens and how do you respond to it? And that's what matters. And it actually comes full circle because that's a lot of what a COO does, especially in their job. You can't plan too much ahead. You try to, but in reality, it's very, very reactive. Um, so that was, a, that was a, a really big, I guess, lesson in, in, in that sense. And like, how are you dealing with failure and setbacks uh, and being resilient in, in terms of dealing with those situations? Um, was big. And then the other part, I would say, and this applies to any kind of product development or if you're creating a product or anything, is the needs to, to whatever you're creating needs to benefit all stakeholders in every situation. So especially in some of the healthcare solutions like like we're, we're, we're building and you were building at Thoughtful, it's been like there's so many different stakeholders that are part of it. So in, in our group right now, we have like researchers, we have doctors, we have patients, and in, so many, and in your case, you had sometimes you even had insurance companies getting involved as well. And um, I think in my experience dealing with um, the situation that was in Ethiopia, um, that, was, that was the lesson I learned the most. And, and the reason for that is when we launched our EMS system, this was the, we had proven it, it was working fully within a year. It was the first time since, so like, we weren't the first ones to try this. The UN had tried this um, about four years before we got there, and it was a complete mess. It just complete flop. They spent millions on it. Our total cost for us building our platform that was supporting thousands of patients was 10 grand. That's how much we spent on building the entire thing. And it was just like, like obviously we pulled in some volunteers and, and stuff like that. But like that's how to show like how much you can do if you have a will to, to do it. Mm. And what we had found is that although we had a technology and it was ready for deployment, essentially what we had created was a technology where you could essentially deploy an EMS system in the most rugged of environments. So think of like anywhere across sub-Saharan Africa, talking about a billion people. A lot of these communities don't have these specific infrastructures in play. So how can you launch a kind of what we call a pop-up EMS system? So it doesn't have to be full-on ambulances. It could just be someone on a motorbike. It could be someone in a boat. Mm. Um, so like all these different kinds of situations. Um, and that we had created this technology. And at the time, we had even gone, we had gone to Geneva. We had met with the UN and... It's done so many different steps, and it still wasn't picking up to turn this into a nationalized program. Um, and then parts of that were obviously a lot of stakeholders in play. You had the government. They have their own agenda. You have the aid organizations. It's a huge business. The UN, the WHO, all these groups, they all have their own agendas with their own budgets. So you need to, everything you do um, had, to, had to fit into play. It took us... On the closest we've ever gotten to turning our system into a full nationalized system deployed, the closest we had gotten um, was about six years into having deployed 
the, the, the official system. And we had the reason we had gotten it is because we had slowly learned this lesson of getting everyone involved. We had gotten the Minister of Health on board. We had gotten their number two, their number three on board. We had gotten the Prime Minister on board in Ethiopia. We had gotten the WHO on board. And most importantly was whenever you're deploying something like this, who's paying for it, right? The country can't afford it. So who's paying for it? So we had gotten the, um, oh, who have we gotten? Um, the monetary fund to the, the international monetary, the IMF mm. to, to essentially fund the entire thing. And we came in there and said, look, we have the technology, we have the know-how, we have the funding to deploy this. All we need is just the people to accept it and the heads accepted it. But it actually, like, when you go down to that fifth, sixth, seventh in line in, in those government positions, turns out they ask themselves, well, what am I getting? Right? Mm. It's like it, it's not enough just to fulfill your job. They're, they're trying to think of their career aspirations as well. So in, in our case, it was like we had gotten so many things ready in the stakeholder position, but we still were missing a couple parts, and it never got fully nationalized uh, in that sense. So anyways, that's a bit of background yeah. on, like, why it was so important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think... I think there's so many lessons to be learned about that, right? I, I, I think about uh, such deployment, you know, Malaysia itself, you know, we've gone through three to four government change in the last four, four five years as well. Uh, and I've heard about, uh, you know, friends who are working in the industry to kind of change various aspects of the country for the better, right? They describe the same challenge as, as you as well, right? You know, stakeholder changes, you know, you almost have to do this, the thing that you do, right? Going to the second, the third level, you know, second command, third in command. Those that are unlikely to be changed due to political changes as well, right? Those stakeholders has to be there and it really takes years uh, to to do this, right? So I think, um, you know, the resilience part, it's, it's you know, it's no joke in this, in this, in this case. Um, you know, you, you spoke about, you know, something that really kind of piqued my interest is also um, around, uh, you know, you mentioned that early in your career, right, when you went there, you kind of knew, like, good, my goodness, this is what I want to do. Is it, was there, do you remember, you know, the first time that thought came to your head? You know, what were you seeing, what were you experiencing, right? I'm sure it's an accumulation of, you know, various moments, right? But at the moment when you had that realization, do you remember what happened then? You know, what, what were you experiencing? I think for me, it was, it was seeing the people, right? So it was getting that, it was seeing the impact of the work that was being done. And it wasn't, it wasn't me. Like I wasn't the, the medical professional providing help. I was yeah. just helping this movement of my pal and his father's hospital, like just take off and, mm. and build this momentum. But it was the interactions that I could see them having with the actual patients. And um, for me, I need, to, I need to be close to the impact in order to feel like I'm partaking and participating in it. So um, that was that was a key point. And I think it was like, I mean, I have so many stories back from like those days of like, you, you're you seeing these like crazy stories of like um, things that you, you I've never encountered being in Canada uh, before. And you see all the, the work that's being done. And like, actually, I'll, I'll give you a story. So actually, this, yes. is, this is related to um, the stakeholder part as well is so like a lot of times what we would do is so our hospital that we were that we had built was a social enterprise so essentially it was completely owned by charity but what we did is we we provided services at cost as the it's the Addis is the capital of the African Union so you have over a hundred embassies being there so you have all these people with uh, health insurance international health insurance and pretty 
previously, if they were getting sick, they would fly to Dubai or maybe they would go to Kenya or something like that. So what we were doing, because we had we had finally provided international level health services, we could now bring in some of the higher paying uh, customers. So we would serve them and then we would use all the profits we would make to fund all our charitable work, mm. kind of a self-sustaining system. Yeah. Uh, so in, in terms of what we were doing uh, in that case, we would often go look for specific charitable cases that we could help out with. And, and honestly, a lot of times you would just, every day you go to the hospital and you see like people knocking on the door being like, can you help me get off this? Mm. I remember one time we would, this might have been maybe like month three or four when I was there, we had just gone for, uh, for coffee um, just down the street and um, there was a, a little child that was just there, com- like disfigured. And a lot of the stuff that we would do would be, because we did emergency surgery as well as facial reconstruction, um, we had talked to this kid, he must have been maybe like five, maybe five, six years oh, old yeah, max. Yeah. And he was just he was just there. He wasn't in school. He was just standing on the stride, essentially begging for, for money. And we had gone to him and um, obviously he, he spoke Amharic, which is the language the language there. So we had asked the um, the attendant in the parking lot to like to help translate and discuss with the kid. And it turns out that um, the, the kid didn't have any parents, he just had an older brother. So we had asked been like we told him been like, if you come back tomorrow at ten a.m., we'll come pick you up and we'll take you to the hospital and essentially do the entire facial reconstruction for free, so you can finally join in and jo- go to school. Because a lot of time there's a lot of stigma when it comes to medical issues where you don't look the same as other people. So he was ostracized from society, couldn't go to school. So we said, you know what, we'll do this and get this kid and give this kid his life back. Yeah. And the next morning we show up at ten a.m. to to pick him up and he doesn't show mm. and we asked the attendant been like where where's the kid like maybe you should wait a little longer and he says the brother the older brother of the child um thought that it wasn't a good idea they didn't want to get him um mixed up because it was their only way of earning money was begging and in that was the best way for them to earn money begging is because he had mm. s- such uh, facial disfiguration so it was like when I heard that story, and this kind of brings back to like the stakeholder part, and been like a lot of times, like even when we think about building solutions in healthcare and like the health tech space, been like we think about that end user, and we we try oftentimes to put ourselves in the position of that patient or the person you're helping. And in this case, been like everyone would have thought, oh, what a great idea! And even we were so on board, and like we didn't put ourselves in the position, framing it from their specific yeah. perspective of like what does this individual want. Um, and anyways, that's just like a, one of the yeah. lessons that really shaped our, our, yeah. our perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, healthcare access and affordability is probably one of the, I guess, quote unquote, wicked problems, right? And, you know, you being there, you, you, see, you, you see so much needs as well. And it, it, it must be in, on certain days discouraging, right? Because progress is slow. And yes, you see impact. Um, I, I, I wonder, you know, how does the team and yourself, right? You know, you being uh, one of the, the the leaders as well as well. How do you kind of like keep the morale up and and you know you know focusing on on the mission, uh, so to speak, right? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely in, in Ethiopia, it's like my my pal and his dad have been working at the hospital since we started like nine years ago, and it's they've dedicated their entire lives being there, and that's what's like. Those are the true heroes, like doing the work. They don't get any shine whatsoever. They're not on LinkedIn posting stuff. They're just in there doing the work, dedicating themselves. Um, I think, I mean, it, in their words from 
from, from chatting with them, yeah. uh, it's really about seeing the individuals in the work that you do, um, mm-hmm. is always what um, the, the surgeon would always say, Dr. Shell. You right. say it's about seeing the individuals, like there's an ocean of people that you can help, but it's about noticing the individual drops, those individuals that you're helping and seeing how you can uh, mm. kind of create that impact from, from there. Yeah. yeah. So that that is such an adventure, such a journey. Um, what brought you to PhysioCube, you know, back then and at LabFront, right? How yeah. what does that look like? Because so Chris came along for the ride, <laughs> and you know, you you successfully built it up, you know, with frugal innovation with 10k versus the UN the millions. So what happened yeah. there? You know, how did that chapter unfold, right? Yeah. So. As I mentioned earlier, Chris was in, in Taipei at the time working at HTC. Yeah, so yeah. when we had built the system, we were like, okay, you know what? Turns out we don't need to do uh, a full-on MBA, working in industry 20 years before creating something that can help. So we said, let's just do it right now. We already did it once. Let's do it again. Um, so we had – Chris's father is actually a famous researcher uh, at Harvard from, from a center called the Center for Dynamical Biomarkers. We found this lab. Brilliant physicists who applied physics into uh, into healthcare. So a lot of what we're talking about, digital biomarkers. So um, chatting with, with him and Chris and, and his father a lot, we noticed that there's there's a lot of applications within the, the research world that would take about 20 years before it would actually get applied into the real world. It would actually get deployed in situations like Ethiopia or even in Canada or, or Malaysia. So like what we said is like, how can we shrink those groundbreaking discoveries into being deployable. Um, and one of the, the aspects is obviously we saw the technology and some of the applications that um, the lab at Harvard could do. So we decided to, to go to Taipei because Chris already had a network of people that we could initially start up a team with, engineers, designers, all there. So we, we decided to go back to the, or go to Taipei um, in, what was it, 2016, and, uh, and build up our own team right away. Uh, we. I mean, at first we had tried a, a variety of different kind of, I mean, you, you create all the different products and whatnot, specifically around wearable devices and you, you test, you iterate, you fail, and then you, you fail forward, right? So you, you end up building all these different, um, these different solutions. And then we were, in, we were doing some work in China for a couple of years, for like three, four years, essentially building algorithms for um, a lot of the wearable makers out in, um, in China and in Asia. And, um, we essentially what it's called like a dev shop. So we were building algorithms and um, analytics for other people, but we're like, we're still so far away. And we had our experience in Ethiopia. We're like, we want to be able to interact directly with the people we're helping. So that's where we decided at that point to, um, to focus on the health research element, use of wearables uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of how we, we got to Taipei and I was there for seven years. We still have a team out there as well. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, in terms of the you know the work that you do with with in your physical and lab front, I noticed that I guess the maybe the business ang- the business model is slightly different or slightly evolved. I would say right. And, you know how would you describe that that thought process and evolving it? Because you mentioned it's it's a really interesting angle to kind of you know think about health tech impact right? Because you talk about how you wanted to create impact in the health tech space and you know the way you 
the way that we can do this is to enable the so-called true heroes to deploy real technology in use case, right? So helping them to speed that up sounds amazing to me as well. Uh, you know, so between PhysiQ and LabFront, if you can describe to it to the, to the audience, what's, what's that difference, right? Because it seems like there's two entities, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, for sure. What, that, what so does that in, difference look like? Yeah, yeah in our case, um, it first started as like, okay, we've got a core technology. We have the ability to analyze all these signals, these ones and zeros coming out of these wearable devices and translate that into health insights. So you can convert like raw, raw heart rate data into heart rate variability or into stress scores, into sleep metrics and whatnot. So we have this core capability and we went through a variety of different business models. So at, at first we had tried, okay, well, how about we use, um, we deploy wearable devices in healthcare settings to help with sleep apnea. And we had deployed it, and but it was just taking so much time to get hospitals on board because they're very slow moving, especially in, in a lot of these areas. So we said, okay, let's pivot away from that. And long story short, we ended up on this, creating this platform called LabFront, which essentially is um, helping researchers collect all this different type of wearable data in their studies. So let's say they have 100 participants out in the real world. Instead of coming into the lab, you're getting one data point every week. Um, and then you send them back out. This way, you could strap on wearables, collect 24-7 data for the entirety of their studies. So um, we built this platform that would help researchers collect and analyze data um, for, for their entire research project um, with, with our technology. And behind the, the PhysioQ LabFront, so this actually goes back to our uh, how we, we had originally built the entities. So based, we were essentially trying to mimic exactly what we had done in Ethiopia, in terms of using a self-sustaining cycle, using a business entity to further a charitable mission mm. in doing so. So PhysioQ um, was, or still is, a non-profit entity that we had registered in, or created, we had launched in the U.S. Uh, we had done a lot of work during COVID when it had, when COVID happened, we essentially launched this like massive program across the world for, for COVID, early COVID detection. And what we found is when we, when we, like when things really start taking off, for us in uh, in 2021, in terms of like the business money coming in, where we have customers, we have revenue. Um, what we found was actually the the um, charitable organization, essentially the IRS, told us, been like, actually, you can't have a self-sustaining model for a charity, uh, even though. So we had gone to court and everything like that, and they there was no way we could get around it. So although we wanted to build essentially a charity, but with a money-making system in it to right. fund our own work. They said, no, no, technology can't be used for, for good in that sense. That's only a for-profit group. So we were like, okay, well, I guess we need to, we need to create another entity, which was, um, which was essentially LabFront by itself, and it had wow. to be a for-profit entity. So we wanted to be originally a charitable right. entity, and then we had to pivot into being a for-profit entity, and then we had to go the, the fundraising route, get investors, and, uh, wow. and all that. So it's kind of this roundabout way of, wow. uh, of kind of getting it. That's, that's crazy because, you know, we talk about, uh, with, with my previous guest, Pin, we, we talk about social enterprise, social impact, you know, those kind of things, and I think she kind of alluded to, you know, when she was doing the work, right, um, the circumstances was just not ready in Asia. Um, you know, maybe both from a infrastructure perspective, from a funding perspective, and so on, it was not ready. So I was quite surprised to hear that even in the US, there, there isn't kind of like a system that allowed what you wanted to do because 
you know, it sounds like a very straightforward social enterprise case, right? It's basically just money in, so-called, quote-unquote, money in, money out in, in just different areas, right? Um, so it's really, really surprising for me to hear that even in the US, they are not kind of like, quote-unquote, supportive of this uh, type of model. Yeah. I mean, we're, we've, been, we've been working with the SCWF, so it's a social enterprise world forum for, for many years. And one of the key things that they say is that the number one thing that needs to happen across the world for, for the impact sector is to have clear definitions or clear entity styles or entity formats for social enterprise. So they, they have like the, the B Corps and all, and all that course that they've, they've created um, to try to, to fit into that model. But it's still really tough. Like a lot of these countries, like they don't even uh, like even in, in Taipei as well. Like over there, they, they didn't even recognize the social enterprises. It was either charity or it's for profit. There's nothing in between yeah. in the U.S. and Canada. So it's a real pain. So it, it's a bit sad that we're kind of at this state. And it's and then if you go the for profit route, then naturally you can't access any of the supporting resources that are available to charitable endeavors, even though that's what you want to do. So you have to go the fundraising route. And as soon as you go that, something right. called fiduciary responsibility comes in and <laughs> you have to make more money now. You can't just give it away to people. So yeah. it's something needs to change. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, as you're, discuss, yes, you're describing the whole two entity situation and all that, I think my, my chief operating officer had just, just I know what, just started to think about, okay, you know, if I want to channel funds from my for-profit entity to my non-profit entity, that's going to be another tax issue over there. We need to think about all the accounting problems that we may encounter and stuff like that. Oh my goodness, man. I knew you would appreciate this. So we have, man, it's, it's crazy because we had six entities across three different countries oh, wow. that we have to continue. And it's like, there's so much headaches, especially on, on the CEO side of like just bureaucratic administrative processes and like one of them is in Taipei we're talking like Asia kind of systems and then we're looking at US and then can't it's just it's a nightmare uh, but <laughs> thankfully now we've like streamlined it down so it's a bit easier wow. but yeah it was a full-time job to deal with yeah. that right 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 you know, before we jump into the COO conversations, I wanted to maybe just touch on this since we are on the topic of, you know, the, you know what LabFront and PhysicQ does, right? Um, you're working with a lot of researchers and we talk about how, you know, we're trying to really kind of help them propel their, their research forward, right? Uh, have you seen any, you know, cutting-edge research that, you know, you are allowed to share, you know, or maybe past, you know, interesting research, right? Uh, that's using a LabFront of physical uh, platform that you could share, right? Um, that would be really interesting because I'm sure you're, you're at the forefront of really seeing interesting use cases, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we see it across all areas of research. So, and it, it's cross-spectrum. So, trans, translational research is what we call it. So, multi-different, in different segments. So, you, you can look on the psych, psychology side. Um, essentially, think about it. Then, like, Usually in psych, we're sending out surveys to people, so just subjective data, and now they have the capability through a platform of collecting objective data from biomarkers, and even though they, they don't need to be specialists in analyzing data because we'll also do it through a platform directly. So we're now enabling them to go get objective data. So we're seeing this huge push, probably around like 50% of our, our customers are actually coming in from the psych sector, um, wow. coming in and just flooding into the research. So this whole sector is really booming right now. Um, so obviously, I mean, we we had a lot of cool research going on. I say the best one is probably with our partners at Thoughtful. That we had, there's the plug, there's the plug. 
so we had a really cool project with with your your former team as well, where we had um, essentially used digital biomarkers to uh, to leverage and help out in uh, Thoughtful, which is like the mental health telehealth platform um, to help level up some of the, the treatments that you could do uh, and help out the patients on that side, both both helping on the patient side as well as the therapist side as well yes. uh, yeah. with some of the insights. Um, in some other cool, like psych-related ones, we we see some studies related to the effect of social media use on teen well-being. So you could uh -huh. actually track the use of um, apps like, like TikTok or Instagram and see how it would affect the physiology of, of teens and how it would, it would help out on that. We've seen like PTSD therapy or the effect of PTSD therapy among like, military personnel. Um, what else? Let's say let's jump over to the physiological side. We've seen, Really, really big right now is actually the effects of long COVID. Um, so the effects on the physiology of, or the effect of long COVID on the physiology is quite big right now. And then like, we also have a lot of exercise science. Um, so science of movement, um, a, lot of, a lot related to actually the impact of exercise in certain populations. So for example, let's say cystic fibrosis um, or even the effect of exercise for people living with Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we ha we have all these different projects going on, and like some of these studies are are from like twenty participants all the way up to like five thousand participants running wow. in these studies wearing wearables, all being done in the real world. So essentially, the way it works is is like a researcher hands out these wearables to all these like thousands of participants across yeah. the country. They use our lab for an app to be able to yeah. um, to upload the data automatically from their wearable, maybe answer some questionnaires, and then all that data is nicely pushed over to the researchers to be able to do that in real time. And then a big a big issue with in research is adherence. So like are your participants doing what they're supposed to be doing in yeah. some of these interventions? And like being you could able have to took out their watch, right? Because you know me for example, exactly. I, I can't I can't put it on the whole time even though I have one. Exactly. So how do you, how do, as a researcher, you spent millions of dollars into this research. How do you know that you're actually collecting data when they're out for a year, uh, no contact? So in this case, been like being able to track that and then do the analysis uh, is pretty cool. And then, yeah, we launched, we launched our platform in 2021. It's in over 100 institutions right now. It's really prominent in North America. And then uh, we launched in Europe last year. And then we're just starting in Asia a bit uh, right now as well. Yeah. Right, and are you seeing more? I guess more research around heart rate variability, right? Because what that's one that's what we that's what we you know worked on together in in, in my previous organization. Um, I, I recently I was listening to how uh, heart rate var variability. Uh, they were using it to if effectively just manage stress and anxiety and helping people to improve their heart rate variability because it is correlated on how fast you can recover and how fast you can. Uh, you know, be able to kind of modulate your, 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 your physiology, right? You know, do you also see a lot of, uh, you know, research in a heart rate variability uh, space as well? Definitely. It's, it's probably the, like, the hottest metric in research right now is heart rate variability, yeah. for sure. Um, and like one of, there, there are like common misconceptions when it comes to heart rate variability. So like, let's say you get uh, from like your Apple Watch or your Fitbit Watch, they say like, oh, here's your HRV score or your stress score. The reality is, is, the sampling rate at which they're collecting the heart rate in, in consumer devices is every 60 seconds. So they're collecting your heart rate every 60 seconds. That's not granular enough to provide clinical validated HRV. So like, although they claim, oh yeah, we're doing HRV, it's not a clinically validated one. So it's it's kind of like this consumer light version. So like right. one of the things we at LabFront and what we did actually with, with Thoughtful as well is we yes. collected 
we have the ability to, to essentially like ramp up the sensor frequency of these watches, collect much higher granular data, and then we can use that data to then calculate all these different types. So there's like 35 different types of heart rate variability. Um, and we can do everything from frequency domain, like time domain, maybe some nonlinear applications as well. And essentially all these different metrics um, sometimes have some different physiological responses as well. So like definitely the overall, you can kind of sum it up as like, um, like stress, like your physiological stress for your body. Um, and or you, oftentimes you can also consider that as like recovery. Um, so that that's definitely the one of the biggest ones that we're looking at right now, especially related to stress. Mental health is huge right now. And even in studies that used to do or research that just used to do the physiological component or the exercise phys, they're now bringing in the mental health component as well, because you can now collect um, like we did in, in, in with the with thoughtful as well. You can collect both the objective as well as some subjective feelings as well. Um, so we're, we're seeing that that whole sector take off. So we're, I think what we're going to see is a lot of the research that's coming out will be a lot more full. So one, it'll be way quicker to, to, to go from project creation to publishing, kind of like we saw during COVID. It's been like somehow research that used to take like six years was being published quick, really quickly within six months. Um, so it's been like, how do we leverage and kind of accelerate that process? Mm. Uh, going forward? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, the, uh, let's, let's jump into the uh, COO conversation, right? So we had a, yeah. a chat about this, you know, I think uh, we uh, had a lot of fun conversation, I guess, related to one another, right? Uh, and it's often the time that, you know, I was speaking to another COO in, in another fintech here, over here in Malaysia, and he was, he, was, he was essentially talking about the same thing around, like, there's just not a lot of support forums out there. Uh, but, you know, before we jump into it, for the benefit of our listeners that may not be familiar with, I guess, the, the, you know, the intricacies of a COO role, um, let's talk about what it entails, right? You know, especially perhaps in a, in, a, in a health tech startup, for example, or maybe in a startup in general, right? What, what does it entail, you know? Would you like to kind of elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah. yeah, for sure. And our chat was more of a venting session than anything else. <laughs> so it, was, it, was, it was a therapy session. Yeah, yeah it was, um, it was, it was. Yeah. <laughs> no, so I, I think the, the day-to-day responsibilities of CEO, I mean, they vastly differ uh, based on your company stage, your sector. So I, I'll, I'll talk about it from, from my angle. So let's say the, the, the pre-Series A uh, company stage in like health technology. So yeah, software zero space. to maybe 50 uh, to zero to 50, 25 kind of, kind of size, right? Employees, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, the, I like to describe like this CEO stage is, is really like the jack of all trades, master of none, right? So you just end up doing anything that needs to be done and you don't have enough time to spend becoming a master at one thing. So as soon as you manage to just get something done, you move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so like things that we would, we would deal on would be like anything from like, I mean, typical cases you could use, you could deal with like product um, development, marketing, sales, finance, HR, maybe customer s- service, and definitely the, the administrative, legal, regulatory stuff as well. Uh, in our startup, so in, in my experience, it's a bit unique because um, Chris, our, our CEO, is much more product focused. So he, he he has experience on the product side. So he oversees all the product, the design, engineering, R and D bit. Um, and then we usually pat historically over the last last nine years, we pass back and forth like marketing, sales, yeah, fundraising duties, and stuff like that. Um, but our headcount right now is like let's say like fifteen. Um, and in in my side, it's been like anything administrative six entities across like 
three countries, um, anything with like, I mean, you're dealing with like operational regulations, all that kind of stuff, it's a nightmare. Anything on the finance side, um, business or business ops. So anything from like projections to modeling, which is like at early stage, you don't think it's important, but as soon as you bring on fundraising or you go front, it's like that's all you're doing is just continuously updating these these models every day. Oh, it's a, that, that's a real time suck. Um, and then definitely in our space was regulatory and legal. So it's super heavy in the health tech sector, um, especially in our case, because every country has different regulations. So every country we were, so I was just looking at the other day, actually. So I was like, okay, we have the UAE. We had a new customer in the UAE. I'm like, what are the regulations? In there? And I'm just Googling and trying to figure everything out. Being like, okay, what are the tax implications and all this kind of stuff? So it's like, it's dealing with, with all these different things on a, on a continuous basis. Um, but more, most most recently, uh, we were talking a bit before before this call as well. Most of my energy now that I've, I've transitioned over to North America to, to really push on our on our sales and customer success, customer facing partnership style. So like a lot of my work is now focused on that. But like, and I'm curious to know your experience as well. Like my, yeah. my experience has always been you kind of go through phases like two months are really into this legal yeah. or like we were really into like HIPAA compliancy. And then after yeah. that we go, okay, talk to, okay. Then we jump over to other stuff. I'm yeah. curious on, on your perspective as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's similar, right? Uh, you know, the first it's, it's in phases as well. I think in the first year it was more because we have, we have less than five during the first year. Right. So we were five, seven ish employees at that point of time. Um, so I was quite heavily involved uh, in uh, in the product aspect in really just making sure that you know our website works, you know our our, our app don't crash, uh, you know working with the developers, you know also also involved in business development as well, right? Supporting uh, supporting the founder in in, in, in pitching and, and, and things like that as well. Um, so I think you know the first year was like that. The second year onwards, you know we had a little bit more. Uh, you know, firepower in that sense, and and you know, we we managed to kind of get in, uh, get in and hit a product as well, right? So my my role then uh, evolved a little bit more towards like managing uh, more on the contractual side of things, you know, to making sure that you know whichever deliver what we promise in that sense, right? In a summary, is really that you know when it comes to having new partnerships coming in, like for example, the the the, the research project collaboration, for example, I've got to anchor that. You know, stabilize that a little bit and pass it on to, to someone else. So I think it's really around uh, traffic control. <laughs> you know, I guess you know the definition of a role in a, in another sense is really traffic control and coordination as well, right? So making sure that you know there's no traffic jam internally, figuratively speaking. Um, third year was more around like you know really just I guess you know I played a little bit of that role of you know what you were saying as well, right? In terms of being a little bit more involved in the in the in the BD aspects, right? It's really not my strong suit to be honest with you. Um, I can do it, but I'm not not much of a hunter, right? So you know, I can do pictures. I can, uh, you know, really tell a story really well since I've been with the organization for so long. Uh, but not much of a hunter myself. But I still got to figure out, right? In terms of like, what does a sales funnel look like? You know, what's the conversion rate going to be looking like? How many leads are we are we getting, right? So I think uh, my my experience is kind of in 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 phases as well, just like yours. Um, I think to me, the unique position of a COO, it's really being able to kind of look at the strategic aspect and just make things work, right? Making it actionable, making it executionable and things like that, you know. But the thing is that oftentimes these roles tend to be described as, uh, you know, quite executional, you know, and, and, and it's less strategic in that sense, but you have to be strategic. I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts around like, you know, 
what does the ratio look like practically speaking, right? Strategic versus operationally speaking, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it definitely changes as, as you grow or as I, I say, not necessarily like oftentimes we think of like headcount growing, but I, I don't necessarily, I, I kind of disagree with myself in that, in that statement because actually it's more been like, what are your priorities given at, at a specific moment? So like early on, it's like, okay, we're heavy on product development. And then like right now we're at a stage over the last like year where it's like very focused on business sales, more BD focused on, on my side. So you kind of like navigate these different roles um, in terms of, and it also depends in like, what are your limitations in terms of resources? Because, like, I mean, the reality is, is running a startup is very expensive, and especially if you want to build something, it's very capital intensive in the beginning. Um, yep. So, do you have enough runway? And, like, what are some of the, um, the limitations on the budget? Like, can you afford to just send something over to legal, but it'll come back and cost you four grand in yeah. for one paper? you had already done all the work anyways. So like, and oftentimes, even now, I'm, I'm still like, no, it's not worth it. I'm going to review it myself with, and then hope for the best. It's like, it's just so expensive oftentimes to do these kinds of things. So like, mm -hmm. in terms of day-to-day -day work, to answer your question, I mean, we would love it to be more strategic than operating. I think that's like, the higher level you go, obviously you want to be um, uh, more strategic, but in reality, especially in those early stages, it's like 10% strategic, 90% operational. At least, like in my case, yeah, you try to take a break and then try to figure out, and like, okay, what am I doing? How am I going to do this? And then you don't have resources to just delegate. So you just, a lot of the time, you just got to do it yourself. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I think as I was kind of like reflecting on my journey and you know what what it was, what does it look like, right? Like what it can look like. Obviously, you know, I you know I I, I think I've done I've done what I could to 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 you know help the help propel the organization to where it is today but obviously there, there are some limitations me being the first time COO obviously um, I was reading this book uh, you know called deliver what we promised by the, the, the ex-North America uh, CEO Lego's ex-North America CEO he is the first uh, you know non he's the first Indian national taking on a, you know traditionally very strong uh, 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 organization right um, and he was talking about how there shouldn't be many many different strategies. There should be one central strategy, and everybody else' role is to support that, that that strategy. And I feel like COO a lot of times needs to play need to play that role as well, right? Because we discuss as as a leadership team around uh, what is the central one strategy, and the rest of it is really like how do we then execute to 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 support that strategy as well. So everything from, like you mentioned, right, resource allocation and things like that, uh, you know, compliance is, uh, compliance and I guess regulatory, regulatory uh, concerns are one of the big areas that, you know, we had as well. Like for example, our clients, for, uh, like insurers and, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, employers, they want privacy, data privacy and rightfully so, right? So you talk about SOC2, you talk about like HIPAA, you know, which we had a conversation around. Those are enablers for us to do business, right? So therefore, we need to execute on it, and therefore we need to be able to kind of really just double down on these different aspects to be able to do the business. Otherwise, you know, there's no growth, right? Uh, so to me, I, I totally agree with you in terms of like, there's probably 10%, you know, really thinking about the, the, the strategy, important. But 90% of the time, I think during the early stages, it's really about down to how do you execute well and, you know, manage the resources that you have, right? Um, I totally yeah. agree with you. Yeah. Part of that, part of that operational, definitely in my case, because once again, it was like, First time doing this 
all this kind of stuff. Plus, like, if if you're doing something like innovative, then you're going to come across, especially in some of these like these cutting edge sectors, kind of like yeah. you were doing at Thoughtful. Well, it's like you're coming across all these these different uh, these new kind of situations where you just have to learn on the fly. Like, even if you had experience being CEO at, at another place before, like <laughs> you're encountering something brand new. So it's like like part of the job description mm. is like you need to know how to learn and self and be okay with not being the best at something because like it definitely in my case has been like it's like before I operate I need to make sure I've been like okay quickly learn figure out exactly what you need to do for the situation and then execute yeah uh, the execution sure. part is the easy part that's yeah, it's yeah. the I find it's the it's the learning part that takes the most time oftentimes uh, and it's always constantly changing yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you touch on something that you know uh, that is pretty important in my opinion when, when we look at a COO role right uh, is that it's unique and if you put myself in a different organization, I'll be a totally different person and I may or may not succeed, even if I have succeeded, you know, multiple times over in previous roles as well. Uh, and you oftentimes also talk about like dynamics with the CEO and, you know, the, the, the dynamics between the strength of the team as well, right? Uh, the composition of the team that you had at that point of time. Um, so you mentioned, you know, Chris, you've been, you've been with him for, for, for nine years, right? And uh, I'm, I'm curious in terms of like, how do you then you know work out dynamics across the years, right? Because I'm sure it has now from you know you started as friends, then you throw in the professional aspect, <laughs> right? So how do you then work out that, that that I guess you know being able to kind of you know maintain op- objectivity, professionalism, and then you know we are all humans. Friendship is important. So I'm I'm curious in terms of how did you manage this with, with Chris over time as well, right? Yeah, well, I mean, especially for for how long we've been doing it as well. It's a, it's like it's a relationship, right? It's 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 not just like a, a work. It's it's a full on relationship. It's like a marriage in, in that sense. We've been doing that for for quite some time. Uh, just like any other relationship, it goes up and down, right? Sometimes you end up like super aligned. Sometimes you end up in like uh, you t- take things for granted in terms of alignment. Like even even at work, um, let's say um, sometimes I remember like early on we wouldn't have like a necessary cadence uh, mm. in terms of like meeting up, we would chat a bit, and then sometimes we end up working on our separate stuff because there's just so much to do. You end up like zoning out and siloing up for like two months and then realize, oh my God, we're a bit like unsynced right now. How do we get through there? So, um, and we've definitely made our mistakes in terms of like the not syncing up, but one of the things that we've gotten way better, especially over the last year now that, I mean, especially since since we're remote, we had to do it. Um, and, and also not only remote, but also async because different time yeah. zones completely flipped. So mm. Chris spends splits his time between Boston and Taipei. I'm mostly based in, in North America. So uh, we we set up like our cadence being like we have we have two weekly meetings, one on Sunday nights right before the start of the week, and then one uh, midweek just after this call, actually I'm gonna have one as well. And it's like <laughs> being able to sync where we set like an hour where we don't have a necessary uh, agenda yet. And we just block those off and we do it every year. It doesn't matter if we don't have anything to talk about. We still get on there and something will naturally come up. And mm. that way we're always in sync. And it's been night and day since then um, in terms of like our efficacy as a team and as leadership uh, in our organization. And it's like, but you got to go through it. It's, it's hard to, to, to schedule those in, but it's been super important. Uh, and it's been, it's been great so far. Right. And you got to, you, you, you gotta stick to it, right? You gotta honor it, right? Because you know, it's it's one thing to schedule it; it's another thing to show up, right? So I think it's important that, uh, you know, once once you've got those time in to to sync up, you show up, 
and like you say, right, regardless of whether you've got anything to talk about, regardless of you know how important other things may seem to be at that point of time, unless it's really a uh, life and death situation, you show up, right? So I think I think those kind of cadences definitely uh, you know helps as well. Um, I think you, you talk about how like you can go silo to in for, for two months, right? Uh, which is not ideal obviously, uh, at that point of time. Uh, but you know we we have to work closely with you know various departments right so uh, even though even though you 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 may it may appear that you're in silo but you got to touch you have various touch points as well um, you know, talk to me a little bit about I guess you know cross-functional collaboration and you know how do you actually like you know facilitate like effective communication between different teams as well right? because I think that's one of the main roles of a COO um, to really because you have the vision of how do we then execute the, the the big picture in that sense, right? So, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, one thing that's been good about, like, especially with, with our team, is like both Chris and I are heavily involved in the, in the communication aspect. Even sometimes, probably even more Chris in certain tasks, because not only on our team did we have the, um, just like the standard work relationship, but also there's differences, not only in departments, but also in, in cultures as well. So mm. I'm, North American coming in into um, into Taipei, all Chinese speaking. Thankfully, most of our, or pretty much all our employees can, can speak English, but like still, Chinese is their preferred language. And so, and Chris, obviously, I I've tried, I've failed multiple times at, at being efficient in Chinese. Uh, but like, oftentimes, Chris would take that lead in terms of getting in detail and, and figuring out exactly what's going on. So, like, we've we've had to deal with all these different kind of elements, even in our time in Ethiopia, like language, culture. Um, even now, I mean, everyone kind of um, deals with this now, but with the idea of like remote work that, and thankfully, thankfully with uh, COVID has been great because everyone has experienced remote. So, and everyone's been kind of sharing their learnings as well. Um, so that's, and that's been quite key for our transition into going remote and async in like completely 12 hour different schedules as well. So being able to learn from, from other founders and like, I, I've made the mistake. I used to go, been like, I used to go out to my network and ask them, like, okay, like we've previously talked about, like, okay, who do we ask for advice? Like, do we go to see another COO and stuff? Yeah. I've I've realized at this point, and like, I don't even bother going to ask other COOs. I ask them for like strategic, like, how do they manage their day to day? But in terms of like specific sectors, I go find a specialist in this one versus another one because like, I've made the mistake of going to like top CEOs for like large organizations of like hundreds, thousands of employees and their problems and the way they work is like they're like you need to be efficient delegators and i look around my office and i'm like i'm delegating <laughs> to myself here. like eh. so it's it's such a difference when you're in that in that startup phase so yeah um, yeah, yeah for sure I, I i feel like the it's easier said than done but i really think that you know one one statement remains true is that you know, the moment you kind of move into such a role, right? And in the context of being in a startup, in a smaller startup for, uh, setup, for example, um, you kind of really need to find people that are that are in this phase as well. Because I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, your corporate friends, for example, you know, love them to bits, but they just can't relate to what you're doing. Uh, and, 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 you know, their advice will ring hollow and, and, and in many on, on, on many occasions. And... It's so tough because as, as COO, I think another challenge is really that, you know, there are so many times where you are, you just can't share, right? Because you, you're, it's, it's not right to share and, you know, because you can't, cannot share, 
when you go and let's say like for example we meet for example i'm sure there are a lot of things that we cannot talk about and therefore it becomes therapy by <laughs> just talking about very surface level stuff right and, and sometimes perhaps that's good enough you know i, I don't know what's your, what your experience yeah, is like as well no i i totally agree i same exactly the same thing as well um yeah it's it's really interesting because not yeah in our team not only the culture aspect but yeah it's 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 quite interesting yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, in terms of, um, I guess, hard-learned lessons as, as COO, right? Uh, if you need to, I guess, write, write, a, write a blog post about it. Let's not talk about a book yet, right? <laughs> Let's talk about a, a blog post. Uh, you know, number one mistake not to, not to repeat. <laughs> or, number, or two mistakes that you, you not to repeat, right? What would it be? Um, okay, so if I, if I was writing a blog, I think, I think that, like, first, I guess, the title of the piece, to me, uh, it, if I were writing to, like, other future people considering, yeah. in, let's say, in very much our sector, like, 3A, health yeah. technology sector, yeah. I'd be, it, my title, it's, it's an my email title sent, sent be, to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, I, my subject line would be, you can't do everything, and it's okay. That's what it would be. Because, like, the reality is, is dealing with, I mean, a lot of what we do, especially in the CEO side, is very reactive. It's not like, it's not like product development or, like, as an engineer where you have your, your goals. You have your, you have your scrums. You have all your, your different engineering cycles. And um, then you can just execute from there. It's, like, a lot of the stuff that we deal with, we try to, we try to, to plan ahead of time. But it's very reactive in a lot of situations. Something happens. And you have to, you spend, like... Your entire day schedule is is ruined, and you just got to deal with it, and no one notices at the end. You did all this work, so it's like it's you don't get a lot of shine. That's for sure. That's why. Um, and then the other thing is, um, yeah, there's just there's so much stuff that, and especially I'm, I'm thinking, especially for myself, and like I end up having so many things on my list that I need to do, and what ends up becoming super important is triaging the tasks uh, according to like. Focusing on tasks, on on the tasks, um, on tackling the most mission critical items is what I think is the, is the most important. And I've had to learn this the hard way. Like I used to do whatever I I something would come up and I'd get distracted, and some new email would come up and I'd jump to this, I jump to that. And the, the switching cost of different sectors because you have to wear so many different hats as a CEO. Switching cost is real. And you spend so much time focusing on one and just jumping in from like a finance task to jumping over to a legal one. It, it takes a real amount of brain power and effort and energy to do that. So I try to limit now the amount of switching costs. So like I'll have my email blurbs during the day and I won't even, I'll read through all my emails and I won't even answer them all and I'll, I'll cast, I'll triage them and then I'll say, okay, my morning is just going to be all legal stuff. Then I'll have like contracts and then after that I'll I'll, I'll schedule it out that day. I'll block out specific times to work on those items because, like, otherwise you end up just going around and getting too distracted, and that's not that's not productive. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd say yeah, you can't do everything, and it's. A <laughs> I felt that when you said that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's it's real because you know I to kind of build on that. I would say that, um, in terms of being able to um, triage is important, right? Uh, you, you, you rightfully pointed out that there are 
you want you always want to do ten thousand things because you are able to see the 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 end in mind, right? And I think one of the thing is that figuring out when to do what is the 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 biggest problem you will have. Uh, and trust me, nobody has figured it out. <laughs> but the only person that can figure it out is you. <laughs> I think I think that should be that will be mine. I think right figuring out. When to do what will be your biggest problem. Nobody has the answer but you. And that's okay as well. You know. To me, that's probably my experience. Uh, because I came from a larger organization. I've seen how, you know, how neat or how structured things can be, right? Uh, but like you said, the, 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 I guess the resource constraint that we are faced uh, at different junctures just doesn't allow to, for, for us to execute at, at that level. Uh, but if you enjoy figuring out stuff, this is the role for you, right? Uh, in terms of yeah. being able to kind of play within the confines. I, I love, like, if you give me a set of confines and let's see what we can make the most of it, I find that really, you know, interesting and exciting as well. So if you like that, I feel like, you know, the COO role uh, in this kind of setup would be interesting for, for, for that kind of people, right? I agree. I, I think you're right. It's like It's like a limitation on both resources as well as time yes. and it's like both of these come in and then you have to figure out exactly what you do so like it, it, i agree this like i've gone i've talked to many people on like large organizations and and like been able to see exactly what their processes are and you can have the most like meticulous like detailed or like even i'm, I'm thinking like on the on the sales side, let's say. You yeah. can have the most detailed sheet, or even if you're building projections, the most detailed things. You could spend weeks on this, and in the reality, is it moving the needle for your startup? Is it taking you to the next step? Is it good enough? And then just move on to the next most mission-critical item um, is is a skill, and it's... yeah. I never feel like I'm good enough at that point. I guess we'll just keep keep improving as we go as we go along, right? Yeah, if we have a combined uh, blog post or email, I think the title will be "Let Go." <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jordan. Uh, you know, thank you so much for for being on the show. We're we're kind of like close close to the hour, and uh, I really appreciate you sharing uh, your story of your journey as well. I I learned so much more, and it just makes me feel uh, really invigorated about you know, the health tech space so you know thank you for sharing uh your, your your journey with us wonderful thank you so much for having me and uh just remember you can't do everything and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> thanks Robert. all right take care